Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Some of you are joining us after the break and some of you have been here already. And we're here now to discuss women in enterprise, always the winner. And as somebody remarked to me very dryly, one of my panellists, what a lot of men there are in the room to hear a discussion about women in enterprise. Um, We are here, I think it's fair to say, in the spirit of great legendary women entrepreneurs. Uh, We have Sam Roddick, daughter of Anita Roddick, speaking this afternoon. Sam Roddick founded Coco de Mer, possibly in the spirit of Coco Chanel, another great female entrepreneur, Estee Lauder, Oprah Winfrey, the list goes on. Worryingly, I looked at the Biz website this morning to bone up on a few stats, and I typed in the words women and enterprise together, Mm -hmm. and I was given 17 out of, you know, 17,000 permutations, and the first up was a report on women in enterprise by a bloke. So that was not fantastically encouraging, although as the Secretary of State said this morning, clearly the government is focused hugely on women in enterprise. And I pulled up another few stats before we get started and the real experts speak about women in enterprise from the Women's Enterprise Task Force. give or take a few updates, because some of these figures are four or five years old. Uh, 12 to 14% of businesses are majority owned by women. I don't know if that figure's gone up massively. 27% of self-employed people in the UK are women. 6.7% of women and 15.8% of men are owners or managers of their own business, according to the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor. So whilst we're quite rightly worrying about equal pay, we're also clearly worrying about levelling the playing field of women entrepreneurs. We are, on this panel, all women entrepreneurs, myself included, and I hope between us we are going to debate not just the questions of women on boards, which the Minister raised, but also whether or not we ought to, in fact, be having an essentially separatist discussion. Uh, would we be as happy if there was a panel called Men in Enterprise, etc., etc.? However, the first thing we're going to do is hear the views and opinions and possibly the stories of the panellists in five very pithy minutes before we open up to discussion. Uh, kicking us off will be Dinah Bennett, OBE, the Director of the International Centre for Entrepreneurship and Enterprise. She had a very illustrious career in academia and then development before founding the Women Into Network, Into the Network uh, Project, WIN. Uh, She is really, she won the Queen's Award for Enterprise Promotion. Uh, She has been a trustee of the Institute of Small Business and Entrepreneurship. So she is very interestingly coming at the uh, formalizing trade for women in enterprise perspective. She'll be followed by Geeta Patel, 
Gita Patel is an angel investor, a director and fund manager of Stargate Capital Management. She is one of the uh, board members of Oxfam, a governor of the LSE, listed in the Asian Power 100 as one of Britain's most influential men and women. That's good that you can, uh, Clark, you, you have a neutral status, Gita. She will be followed by Katie Hopkins, who very entrepreneurially managed to get herself here with similar traffic difficulties to the Secretary of State, the owner and founder of Katie Hopkins Limited. And uh, she's a very well-known media personality and a very successful consultant whose ballywick is very much brands, businesses, startups. She's an economist by training. She's worked globally and uh, she's going to tell it like it is, which is very much her signature. And finally, someone I'm very delighted to have on the panel, Rachel Creese. Last time I saw her, we were surrounded by our children uh, on, uh, between Christmas and New Year. And um, I seem to remember rushing upstairs to attend to my husband, who it turned out was in fact dangerously ill, but I kept running downstairs to entertain my guests, including Rachel's the delightful children. The champagne vodka cocktail. <laughs> but when she's not off duty, uh, Rachel is the director and founder of Inclusive Employers and uh, very much part of the whole diversity and inclusion agenda. She was campaign director of the Employers Forum on Age and the Belief and she's responsible for the forum's campaigning, policy and development uh, side of life. And she was a brand manager at Age Concern England. So there we have it. Let's begin. Dinah, should we even be talking about this? And Thank you very much. I, absolutely. And I think we should continue to talk about it. I can honestly say that I've been around the block about three times in terms of government policy uh, for women's enterprise. And I do find it quite interesting how often we do reinvent the wheel. Um, the session title is Always the Winner. Well, yes, let me say that research has proven that if we actually get more women economically empowered, it's great for the economy. It works, therefore we must do so. But in doing so, we need to ensure that we support women appropriately. We need a level playing field. We need the right policy that really understands the needs of different types of women that would like to set up business. I'd also like to point out that I do believe that entrepreneurship can be located in any context, based on the conversations earlier this morning, that not all women would like to start a business, but they can have entrepreneurial and enterprising competencies developed for them, which they can utilise. So in terms of the level playing field, the policy environment has to be supportive. The banks, the business support providers, have to be gender-proofed. I think they really need to understand their target market. Do the banks really understand the entrepreneurial life world? What I see at the moment are policies and business support interventions coming out that really have a corporate lens. I would like to see these interventions really look at segmenting the market and understanding the needs of people like you and me running our own businesses and the needs that we have. So let's get away from that. Um, role models. Yes, role models are absolutely important, but we need achievable, aspirational and appropriate role models. Many women come to me and say, well, L.K. Bennett, she's great, but she's just too big for me. And research, again, has proven if we actually give an appropriate role models to women, we actually set them back paces rather than move them forward. Can um, public sector employees act as role models for women in business? The government had a women's enterprise ambassador scheme, and in many regions which were led by the RDA, I actually saw just high-profile women that had no sort of bearing on running their own enterprise acting as a role model. What does that actually say to women who would like to run their own business? 
Segmentation of the market is absolutely fundamental. I would actually like to drop the term women. I would like to see it suffixed and prefixed. Old women, young women, rural women, urban women, women with childcare issues, women without childcare issues. We need to get messages out to them in appropriate ways through appropriate media that understand the needs of these different target market. Absolutely crucial. I'm always asked the question, which I'm pleased about, why do you do these things for women? And why are sometimes your events women only? Well, because research has proven it works. And women say to us they sometimes feel more comfortable in a women-only environment at first, especially when there are issues of confidence. And then what we do is we mainstream women into more mixed environments, having offered them the rehearsal space to say, hello, my name's Dinah and I'm thinking of running my own business. So that's very, very important. We use the terms pace, place and space. Let's understand the needs of the women that we're dealing with when we're segmenting our market. Sometimes we run events in five-star hotels, but often we'll encourage events in communities, church halls and mosques. One woman came to me and said, Dinah, I feel as though I've graduated. I used to go to events in the local community centre. Now I've come to, to the one here at the university. I thought that spoke volumes in terms of that woman's confidence. This leads me to should we have specifically targeted support or should it all be mainstreamed? Well, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. Any economy that has specifically targeted support for women as well as mainstream support has done infinitely better in getting more women into business and developing sustainable enterprises. I think it's really, really important that we don't just push down the mainstream route, which sometimes is what government policy is trying to do, and also the one-stop shop, because I see so many women falling between these two stools and not getting any support that they deserve at all. So in terms of always the winner, yes, women in business can be a winner for economies, for themselves, for communities, but with the appropriate support. Thank you. Is, is a woman entrepreneur, though, fundamentally different from a male entrepreneur? At times, absolutely not. But the research has shown that often, for example, 70% of domestic responsibilities are borne by women. And now with the big pensions hole, we are seeing women that are now part of the sandwich generation. Not only do some of them have childcare issues, they have elder care issues as well. And days are going to be lost to the economy for that reason, because 70% of that care has been taken on by women. So in that sense, there are some differences. So clearly the economy has got to have some policies that take adjustments as indeed this coalition government is doing around paternity leave and childcare and all sorts of things that could perhaps go further but is there not a danger that too much special pleading is going to actually create a sense that women are whinging rather than winning. Well, I think it's quite interesting, and I think we've got to address this whole concept of requisite variety. Anything that we do for women, we have to think about the knock-on effect as to what is happening for men. So paternity leave, absolutely fantastic. Look at the issues. There are some men now that would, uh, are now saying, I will stay at home to look after the children because it makes more economic sense for my family. It's not a case of whinging. It's just about hearing a voice about the specific needs that women have. Okay, thank you. Gita. Talk to us, when you invest, is it a factor whether the entrepreneur is a woman? Should well, it be? We invest in women-focused businesses. Uh, women don't have all the skill set themselves. They certainly don't have all the context they need to run a successful business. But as I go through uh, my speech, I will highlight some numbers for you which will make, some, you know, which will make people think in a very compelling way. So I'll do that and then I'll come back and I'll answer your question. 
Um, in terms of background, I'm a chartered accountant. I'm a banker. I was a banker for senior executive for 15 years. I'm an entrepreneur and a fund manager working at the high end, not, not really startup businesses. Now, in April 2006, The Economist and the FD grabbed headlines because they picked up on a body of research and posed a bold question. What do growth and prosperity have in common? Forget India, China and the internet. Economic growth is powered by women. In 2009, the influential Harvard Business Review analyzed the rise and rise of the female economy and described it as the world's largest opportunity of our time and also concluded that as a market, women represent a bigger opportunity than China and India combined. But they went on to pose a further question. So why are companies doing such a poor job at serving, this, serving these people? Companies that can offer tailored, tailored products and services going beyond make it pink will be positioned to win. So let's look at what this international excitement's about and why this segment is seen as the real emerging market in the context of not developing countries, but developed economies. We've had seismic shifts in demographics resulting from better education and opportunity. Women's growing affluence has has led to increasing influence, and yet traditional players and traditional mindsets have not picked up on the opportunities behind these significant trends. You're probably all waiting to see what are these trends. Well, let me share them with you. The first is female income. Earning power is going to be phenomenal, where the majority of new income growth over the next few years will go to women. Female income is set to increase from $13 trillion to $18 trillion by 2014. To put it another way and in context, India's GDP will grow in the same time period to $1.8 trillion and China's to $6.6 trillion. The second trend is that they have the lion's share of spending, so they're a dominant spending power. Women control 70 to 80% of purchasing decisions. This emerging market will require new approaches to providing goods and services that female entrepreneurs will be uniquely positioned to take advantage of. The third trend is that there's a huge growth in assets for them. They're creating their own wealth. Earning savings income like everyone else, but also setting up in businesses. You know, you've got the rise of the kitchen table tycoons. And so there's no mistake, this level of income is far greater, and this level of assets generated is far greater than inheritance and divorce proceeds. By 2020, the number of millionaires is set to quadruple, and 53% of these are going to be women. So taken together, If you look at global demographics and trends, these indicate that more women are founding and running high-growth, scalable businesses. They're creating global brands using technology, hugely helped by the internet. Commercial opportunities are coming out of their social concerns. There is a brain drain that's going on from the corporate sector into the entrepreneurial sector. They're creating a new set of products and services to serve the unmet needs of this increasingly affluent sector with trillions of dollars up for grabs. In the US, 48% of all privately held, majority-owned businesses are owned by women. Canada, 47%. Australia, 33%. Japan, 23%. The UK, 
it's actually 15%, I think. Um, again, makes interesting reading. So here we are with one of the fastest growing segments. But the big issue with this segment is that they lack access to equity capital and networks and resources of venture capital firms. So they're being held back in terms of growth and expansion. Um, if you want to look at numbers, they actually managed to secure just 2.5% of venture capital, which is half the amount that women managed to secure in the US. And if you look at performance, and say take 600 of the venture-backed companies across Europe that are run by female CEOs, they've delivered higher revenues and used less capital. This is research that came out of Library House uh, in May 2007. So why the disparity in capital? Well, factors range from a lack of proper introductions and existing, existing relationships to unintentional investor bias. Personal inter introductions and referrals are important in this segment. Who you know plays a much greater role than it, than it really should. So basically, looking at all these trends, uh, I did a year's worth of research and back in 2006 created Trapezia, which was Europe's first venture capital fund to target women-focused businesses and managed to raise four and a half million pounds, invested in 10 companies, uh, and the sort of concepts we invested in, are, you know, uh, for example, one of the companies we invested in that's gonna be a star in our portfolio was a urinary incontinence product for women, which a bunch of guys sat around a table, had a look at, and basically said, this is unsavory. I saw the fact that the 100 million sufferers, you know, you talk to a woman, she knows exactly what the secret epidemic is. One in three women will suffer. 60% never go to a clinician. If that's not a market, I don't know what is. Um, so there are concepts that are actually not, not well understood um, within the, within the um, funding world. Um, so really, Trapezia led the way. Um, Europe followed. You've got a lot of countries now in Europe that are setting up similar uh, women-focused funds. And yet again, the UK lags behind. So above all, what we need to do is to address the crucial issue of access to capital. It's urgently needed for entrepreneurship. As we all know, entrepreneurship is the lifeblood of, of the economy. It's the engine of economic growth. And, and in order to help us get out of the economic mess that we sit in, women's businesses sit at the heart of actually making change happen and create win-win solutions. So to conclude, um, a quote from Newsweek. They say, this growth represents the biggest emerging market in the history of the planet, more than twice the size of two of the hottest developing countries. So like Trapezia, we need dedicated funds to, to take advantage of these opportunities. Thank you. Mm. Well, that is an optimistic picture. Uh, very interesting. We'll discuss and debate the contrast, if you like. Uh, but the numbers, the number crunching is very, very revealing. Um, so you answered my question in your remarks. Katie, are you an optimist or a pessimist in this discussion? Ooh, a pragmatist, I think. Um, oh, I sound quite echoey. Am I okay? Yes, I'm all right. Good. So uh, thank you for having me here. I think, just checking the time before I go off on one, um, that a separatist approach, um, whilst I do think it's well-intended, I think very often it kind of stifles the actual engines of economic growth that, that women um, inevitably are and uh, the, the individual as the engine of enterprise needs to be freed up in order for that to happen. And I think a separatist idea um, prevents that from happening. 
I think we need to focus on equipping the individual um, for business within a framework that they're actually going to operate in because women aren't just going to operate in business with other women um, unless you're going to join the WI or the Girl Guides and I think they probably will allow men very shortly. So I think we have to equip um, women ready to go and do business in the workplace which and the marketplace which actually has a plethora of very talented and remarkably attractive young men in it as well. I gesture to the audience in a sort of winning manner. Um, <laughs> business, you will recognise, is a very much a mixed team event. And when I'm coaching uh, my girls, as I like to call them, as they start up their businesses, their small, medium enterprises, um, it's pointless, you know, if I coach them for a sprint event because this is a bloody endurance event, for one. Um, business is about endurance. Um, but two, um, it's po pointless if I it, sort of coach them around having some kind of female event at the end of it, because at the end of the day, when they get on that pitch, there'll be all sorts there competing. And that's what they have to be ready for. And there could be Mike Tyndall out there that they will become face to face with. And that will be a very ugly thing. And they will have to face that. And that's what I want them to be ready for. It's getting them ready for the fact that business is not a separatist thing. That's the kind of point I'm trying to make. Um, I, I do believe personally, and it's obviously a contentious issue, that coming together and reinforcing our differences is not necessarily helpful. We can come together and talk about the fact that as women we're quite nurturing and we're collaborative and we're sort of collective types. Well, that's great. But for me, I don't believe that reinforcing those uniqueness, those differences is necessarily helpful when it comes to looking for finance in the workplace. And I do think that coming together in that way is rather like going into a large church hall and listening to the sound of your own echo. Whilst it may be comforting because it's a voice you recognise, it's not necessarily massively informative now, is it? And if you go out there into the melee, the question is, how are you going to get your voice heard above that melee? How are you going to get your message across? And that's what we have to address. And that's what girls, women need to recognise, is they have to get their message across. So that's my view, and it's not okay that we just don't meet the standard. It's not okay that we won't get finance. We have to find ways around that. And I think for me, the solution sits with America. And I think as Gita's figures really neatly pointed out, the 48% of women very successfully running enterprise in the States versus 15% here in the UK. I spent eight years working in Manhattan. I was sent over there to start up the office for our um, operation and uh, we needed a, UK, a US footprint. So I went over there to set up the US office um, to make that happen. We turned over a million pounds in our first year. I'll just get that in because I'm quite proud of it. And, um, and I love Manhattan. I think Manhattan is the best and greatest city in the world. But there are four things that I took away from Manhattan. And those are the things that I take to my businesses that I speak to up and down the country as we look to overcome some of the issues that we face as business people, not just business women. And one of them is that we are universally crap, in my opinion, at showing ourselves and selling ourselves as a great product. Americans have great foyers in their buildings, and there is a reason for that. They are great at presentation. They can gold plate everything, 
and there's a reason for that. They have square footage, and it's about square footage. How much square footage do you have in your, you know, in your reception area, in your vestibule? Okay, so if you've got square footage in your vestibule, that makes you, I mean, really terrible at the accent, even though I spent so long there. But the point is, you, I really quite need to stand up, can you tell? I, really, I can't talk sitting down. It's like, ah. So the point is, you need square footage in your vestibule, which is a, quite a convoluted way of saying, you need to package yourself, people. You need to be able to present yourself. It's not just the way you dress, though. It's the way you sell your idea. Do you see? It's the way you tell me why your business matters, why it's important. The way you tell me why I need to believe in your business. That. Secondly, their buildings are really, really tall. Hmm. The point. There is always a point. We just have to find it. The point is their elevators take a long time. Now the whole elevator pitch, blah, blah, blah. They're really good at it. They've got 48 floors to give you it. And I tell you what, you get in a lift with an American businesswoman, and by the time you get out on floor 48, she's told you what she's doing, how it's going, what's not going so well, what she needs from you, and when she'd like to have that from you, please. And you get out of that lift with the card, with that written on there, and you know. And it's fantastic. And they're brilliant at it. Now, I take my British businesswomen with me into lifts to practice this. Admittedly, we only get to go up three floors, but they're still crap at it. And it pisses me off. So come on, take someone into a lift with you today. Have they got them here at CAS? I don't know, probably. I've never been in one here. But just get someone in a lift with you and say to them, right, come on then, tell me, give it to me. Tell me about yourself. Make yourself interesting, sir, in three floors. I really please do. And if you can't do it in three, try it in two, okay? And it's that. That's what we have to be good at. Okay, nearly there. Three, their apartments are tiny. My apartment was bloody small, and I blame my boss for that. But their kitchens are even smaller. In fact, they just consist of a kettle and a toaster, if you're lucky. The point of this being, there's a point, sir, at the back. You're wondering, but it's coming. The point is they go out every night into the hubbub and the melee of the New York nightlife. And you know what they do again? They network. They're networking all the time. They're networking beasts. They do it in the day. They do it in the night. And when they give you a business card, they're not lazy like we are. They just give you a card. They, oh, there's my card. Would you like my card? Oh, yes, lovely. And I'll put it in my little card holder thing on my desk. That's lovely. They take a card, they write on the back of it, they say, oh, this is what I'm doing next week, come along, I'd really like to see you there. They take your card and they make sure they've re-invited you. And if you don't come, they send you an email and they say, didn't see you there, why not? You should come along next time. Here's the next thing I'm doing. They badger you like crazy wasps on a summer's day when you're eating a honey sandwich. And it's great. And I would... Please, please, next time you give out a business card, don't go, here's my card. Here's my card. Please come along to uh, make up something. <laughs> Do something. But give a card, mean it, give me the next thing. Give me the next thing. Finally, because I know my five minutes are up, where they're at. Town planners in New York, city planners, were brilliant. They learned the street system pretty fast. I appreciate London was born out of a brilliant history of fantastic old ancient people throwing things out of windows on top of your head and haven't we got a long history of everything but anyway town plan is in the states 42nd and 3rd where are you 24th and 3rd where are you 
oh, I'm on. Do you see what I'm saying? They don't need Google in the States. Everyone knows where you're at because they've got two figures. I'm on 16th and 3rd. Brilliant, see you in a mo. Do you see? And my point, there's a point. Um, the point is that they let you know where they're at really quickly. And I don't just mean physically. You know, here I am at 14th and 3rd. They let you know really quickly where they're at as a business. Business is going great at the moment. Da -da 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 -da. These are things that are going well. We just won this contract. Brilliant. They let you know when they're not going well. They don't have this British facade. Hey, I'm really well, thanks. Oh, yeah, everything's going great. Yeah, yeah. They don't have that. Actually, it's a bit crap at the moment. We really need funding. Do you know, do you know no one can help me? They say that. They're really open. Shit, yes, we were made bankrupt last week. And do you know what they did with that? They wear it as a badge of honour. They wait their time, and then they're back in business again. You know, they're much more willing to lose, start again, win again. And it's that. It's that openness. And that's what I think we also need to grasp. So I say, don't go separatist. Go all together. Go four points. Go American. And get out there. And please, 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 if you take one thing away, next time, later on, when you hand over your business card, give someone a reason to call you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I love New York and Manhattan, and we're putting on an event there in June. But I would say, if you love Manhattan, you will love Mumbai, is all I will say, having just come back from Mumbai. And uh, I think the room, the table is possibly dividing into the world is completely your oyster, no barrier whatsoever to let's get real. Rachel, are you going to make us get a bit real, or is everything marvellous in... In, in the world of inclusivity. Tell us how it is from your point of view. Well, I'm going to try and get a bit real. Sorry, I'm echoey now as well. Um, I, you, you asked the question, is this a women's issue? And, and I'm struggling with it being a women's issue. And um, we've just set up inclusive employers because I think we probably need to look at some of the issues facing people in the workplace beyond it being a woman's issue or, in fact, a gay issue or a disability issue. And that's why we've set it up. I am... Um, I don't know very much about enterprise, although you did introduce me as an entrepreneur. Um, so I did a bit of a Google search yesterday when I was thinking about writing this, and um, I put in women in enterprise just to see what came up. And I got absolutely inundated with um, your perfect work-life balance solutions. How are we going to um, cope with childcare? Um, women, should, women who've just had children should go into enterprise, set up your own businesses. You know, you can, this is a solution for you. I've just had two children and I'm now setting up a business, I was saying, it's not the easiest thing in the world. In fact, it's very traumatic and very difficult. And I was looking at my 10 NCT friends. They're all very successful women before um, they had children. Half of them have now set up their own organizations. Some of them have become consultants. None of them are working in the, with the employer that they were previously working at as lawyers and accountants. They've really struggled, and I think women are really struggling, but I don't think it's because they're women, and I think that's why I don't think this is necessarily just a women's issue, and I'm particularly talking about the workplace now. I think that people reach crunch points in their life and in their working life, and um, because they're people, because we don't employ humans, we employ employees to do a job. Unfortunately for business, for employers, employees are human beings at the moment. That might change. It'll probably change quite quickly, but at the moment they're human beings and human beings have the odd problem thrown at them one of the problems that you have is you have children and suddenly 70 percent of your caring responsibility is landing on you as a woman you might have mental health problem and suddenly 
you turning up to work every day being the, the worker is not your primary um, responsibility. It's, it's not the first thing that worries you in the morning. It might be just getting out of bed that becomes a problem. You might become disabled. You might suddenly have a caring responsibility. Your relationship might break down. Your relationship might change. Your religion might change. What employers and the workplace is not coping with are these changes that happen in people's lives. And my experience, and, and even from my very rudimentary searching on the internet, was that when these big catastrophic sometimes or life-changing events are happening to people, they're being pushed into, oh, go and set up your own business, become an entrepreneur. That's your solution to the fact that this world of work and of business is not really set up for you because you're being a human at the moment. And so I think that, I think that as employers, as, as entrepreneurs, as workplaces, we probably need to think about this in a much more holistic way and look at how people are being people at work um, and, um, and see if we can make a difference there. I think um, I was wanting, I was quite interested in the 70% um, of care taken by care of women because I did some um, research on the Fatherhood Institute which told me that men are now doing 30% um, of the childcare in the, in, the, in the weekend and at least two hours a day of the childcare um, in the week. I mean, you know my husband, he isn't doing that. I, was, I, I, I did a quick survey of all my friends. They're, they're not doing that. We're not set up for an equal share of any of the responsibilities that are happening at home. And employers are absolutely terrified of having employees that have other thoughts and other responsibilities going on outside of the workplace. And I think at the moment there's a mismatch. So what we're trying to do is bring employer, employers together who actually think there might be some solutions here. There might be um, a different way of looking at, for example, boardroom representation. You know, they look at their boardrooms, 23% of the people in their boardrooms are women. 70, often 70% 70 of the people in the lower levels of their um, employment are women. They're not getting through. They, they don't have the role models. They're not looking up and seeing these huge successes. You know, they're, they're not winning at work. And, um, and I think employers have a real, the workplace has a real role to play in changing the workplace. And that might be encouraging entrepreneurs. It might be looking at female issues. But I think more it's looking at how is the workplace structured how is the world of work and the world of business structured and how do we make it a bit more human? Thank you. Um, I, I'm not sure I agree with your stats. I mean, I think what's really interesting about the shifting patterns with men uh, uh, taking on more childcare responsibilities is that they are arguably enabling women to work and be enterprising. I mean, I could not have set up editorial intelligence without my husband, who is the house husband. Yeah. I mean, completely end of. And so I know I'm probably still, statistically speaking, a minority, but as far as my own life and my own business and my own employees and my own customers are concerned, it's quite a, you know, a significant statistic, which is... I think you are a huge minority, though, still. In my experience, I, I, even just looking around the playground at my child's school, but perhaps, there's one man Yeah, but perhaps Gita, these statistics... They look quite frightening. They're terrifying. <laughs> and quite interesting to all the ladies, but there's one of them at the moment. Yeah, but in a sense, are we not straying into immediately territory where in order for women to celebrate being successful men have to be put down. No. Uh, you know, the, I mean, there are lots and lots of men in the playground actually hanging out, dealing with their kids and their kids' lives. Um, Geeta, what are you recognising? I mean, I, I just would like Geeta to respond immediately to this question, and then we're going to start opening to you, men and women. 
it's, it's really interesting, you know, because when you look at the economic reality, take my <coughs> husband. My husband's an actuary, um, perfectly compatible, understands why I do in business, understands I need to come home at 2 o'clock at night if I'm at a gala dinner or something. I have a very supportive environment I've created around me. Um, and it's never really been an issue for us, but I do see others that have this issue. But I have to say to you, in eight years, having specialised in this growth segment, never once has a business come up to me that's you know, going to be a, a, a scalable business and ever mentioned childcare mm. or any of these responsibilities. You know, having had a city background, when I look at something, I look at the business case. Either there's a business case or there's no case. Once you get that right, then, then you start to and, you know, create an enabling environment around you. And it's always been that way around. So let's start to have some comments because I think it's going to be interesting to see what the room actually is focusing on. You know, the last session was on skills, but it became a more generalist discussion about enterprise. So let's see where this conversation is going. Put your hand up, say who you are. Hello, my name is Sinead McManus. Um, this is a really fascinating discussion, and I think some of the key points are actually quite linked. So our lovely positive females over here, I think I'm a real optimist about the way the world in general is going. I think the more that we see women being more economically empowered and starting our own businesses will mean that we will have more businesses started, which will have more flexible working and more issues about balance for people, for every person, not people with children, without children, um, you know, men and women. And I think I'm a real uh, optimist about that. So I think I'm, I'm hoping in the next uh, 10, 20 years we'll see things like that happen. And thank you, Katie, for your business cards idea. I'm going to be doing that at lunchtime. So thank you very much. So that's only one love to us then on this side. No, yeah. no, I think it's, 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 it's no, one no, each. I'll just, I'll just get that. It's, it's, it's one, one each. It's one each. I think, I think some of these things are really, really nice. are linked. Thank you. By the way, just on business cards, isn't it interesting in this amazingly digital world and do remember the EI enterprise hashtag, but I don't think the business card is ever going to go out of business, you know. I'm going to pick on you, Barbara Ann King from Barclays Wealth, even though you are not a sponsor of this conference and Lloyd's <laughs> Banking Group is, but I know that your business is, your business area is particularly focused on women, is it not? Very recently, we've, um, it's, an, it's, it's a fascinating discussion, some great views. Um, we very recently actually have started a practice that focuses on our female clients because, you know, for a long time we went through this debate of do you, you know, do you mention the differences? Is it about segregation? If we do it, you know, are we segregating women? Is it going to be offensive, etc.? And we just came to the conclusion that, you know, the, the, the powerful force that is growing in, in the female economy um, is deserving of a, of a service that goes with that. So I'm definitely now of the view, having spent many years also as a woman in a profession, um, that, you know, we just have to sort of stop debating should we or shouldn't we, and just say, you know, women are, for ver in various businesses and various skills, you know, just fundamentally important to the future of our economy. And so, yes, we, we have a dedicated focus on it. So, Dana, can you flesh that out a bit then? I, I think that's really important. I think it's admirable what you're doing. But I would just like to set the record straight. I'm really positive about this, honest. And um, I don't think I've been in the sector for 24 years if I wasn't. I was just trying to stress some of the sort of real issues that a lot of women face in terms of different ends of the market. And, Katie, I actually agree a lot with what you, what you say, to be honest. And when you talk about separate, I'd quite like, you know, being separatist. Do you mean specifically targeted? 
And you talk about women getting together and reinforcing differences. Actually, they don't. What they do is they find out that they're not unique and some of the problems they're facing are very, very similar. But the, what you're going back to, sorry, um, about the banks, we did quite a lot of research looking at sort of like attitudes to banks um, by men and women in business, but also attitudes of the bankers. And it's quite interesting. A lot of women said, I don't want a woman banker. I don't want separate. It's quite interesting. So again, it's going back to choice. Yes. At all. And in fact, it's not structured that way. But it is about recognising all of the other life factors that go with being a woman who runs a business or being a woman who's a professional whose life has changed because she's become very successful and she just doesn't have time maybe to, to manage her money herself or, or do something not dissimilar to what, to what Geeta's doing with, with her funds. So I think that is an important point to make is this is not segregation, it's seg segmentation and there is a difference, absolutely. there's a vast difference. Absolutely, and what a lot of women in research actually sort of tell us as well is they, they see their banker as more of a stakeholder to their business rather than a service provider and one of the things I said, you know, some of us do like football, some of us do like cricket but in terms of corporate hospitality and some of the things that you do, can you think of doing things slightly differently in terms of your um, female clients as well? So a lot of sort of innovation is actually coming from sort of like understanding the needs of that group. So Geeta's coming back I was obviously on one of, one of your panels for wealth management. I know exactly what, what you're talking about. I think, I think you've just hit the nail on the head. It is about segmentation yeah. as opposed to separating them out. And what you're seeing is you're seeing a growth market in terms of assets growing. And if you just get, if your client base is now going to be pretty diverse and people servicing your client base are just men in suits, it's not going to work. And so really what you're doing is you're trying to bring your workforce that can service those needs in a way that you're more engaged with your customer for the benefit of your bottom line. I mean, but Rachel, your point about people are not always winning in their lives is really interesting. Do you think that the debate about entrepreneurship generally is a sort of fantasy based entirely on success? Can you in fact be entrepreneurial and fail in your life? Well, of course you can, you can, you can, but you can also succeed. And I would like to come back to that idea that what I was saying was that it, this is the fault of the men, and I absolutely don't think it's the fault of the men. I do think that there are some structural restrictions to women doing business and women being entrepreneurs, and they're to do with just the way the society and the workplace and the world of work is set up. It's not that men are at fault and they should all get in the playground and stop working by any stretch of the imagination. It's that we probably just need to get better at structuring. But is it a structural weakness that there aren't women on boards or is it an institutional issue or is it that women in the end are less pushy because of those moments in I think, their careers? I, think is, I mean, is it structural? I think it's hugely structural. I, um, in, I spoke to some, um, some board members the other day and they had just debated some promotions onto their board. There were five applicants, um, there were five places um, and so chances were they could all get on. There were three men and two women. Um, they, the men got onto the board within about a two-minute discussion. You know, boards are debating big issues, so they don't, they don't wait very long. The women, it was three times as long in the discussion to prove that they were good enough to get onto that board. They, it, they needed so much more evidence, this almost entirely male board, this very monocultural board. They needed so much more evidence that the woman could deliver something, could be an asset, wouldn't just be a token woman on the board. And I think it's just really striking that 
it, it's not that the women aren't doing really well. It's not that the it's not that women aren't excellent entrepreneurs, haven't got these amazing opportunities. It's that I think we do have to challenge some of the assumptions and some of the structures and some of the support mechanisms. Where when I look up. I'm a woman and I'm setting up a business, I get thrown loads of stuff about childcare. That's not my biggest problem as a woman. I can, I can pay for childcare. I, I want to, you know, I, I probably do need some support from the banks. I do need some support from the fund managers. But I need the advice to be there as well. That's not putting women in a box and saying, this is your problem, you're a problem. Okay, so we'll talk about this more. This is what you've euphemistically referred to as bias. But really, we're talking now about sexism, aren't we? But hang on, hang on. Federation of Small Businesses, and then a woman on a number of boards up there. Federation of Small Businesses. As the first man, and not an entrepreneur, please don't lynch me for my next comment. Um, but first and foremost, I mean, um, the interesting issue is access to finance and some work we've done, and particular comments made by Barbara Brand. Is this a, a genuine issue? Are, are women, has there a presumption that when they go to their bank for, you know, whether it be overdraft loans, that they are more likely to get turned down by their banks? And secondly, you raised the issue earlier about um, that they don't care about the, the mentoring side of who they are being mentored by. I know the government's looking to launch this um, a, a drive to a national mentoring scheme um, with like 40,000 mentors across the country. Is it the case that women are, who are looking to start up businesses would value the input more of a woman on the mentoring side than, than a man? Because I think this is, this is an issue that we're looking at. Um, and you mentioned the fact that it doesn't actually matter, but that's, a, that's an issue that's being raised in our membership. Um, but I'd be keen to know the, the panel's views. Katie. Um, I think push that back to the room, but it would appear from the shakes of the head that women would not prefer... Women, hands up. Would we prefer a man... Uh, or No, would we prefer a woman to be our mentor? No. Not, not necessarily, I guess, is the view for, in terms of people... Yeah, it's about choice. Yeah. But certainly the sort of, the, the, the finance thing would be that it, it would seem a, a commonly held notion that women are less successful at securing finance for their businesses. Um, some would put that down to um, a bias on behalf of the banks. Others would put that down to the fact that women have not approached this with the same uh, courage of their conviction and presented their case in the way that they need to and that's the sort of help we need and that would be more my view it's more a tactical approach to the bank where you need a very firm business case you need to be able to sell that business case and you need to be able to deliver on your returns so so there would be two issues there mine would be much more of a hard line view and may I say I know it's very poor panel behavior to do this but just to link back to the earlier discussion um, that there are very few women on boards, in my opinion, because we take a year's maternity leave. And if you take 12 months out of a business, it's not surprising then if you do not find yourself being considered for board-level positions later on when guys that have been in the business full-time during that tenure are considered. There are far more women in senior positions in the States because they have six weeks unpaid maternity leave. That's, in my opinion, a fact. It's not about bias, it's not sexism. It's merely a fact of how much time you take out of a business and therefore can you really be considered for board level if you're not there. Gita. It's a very obviously uh, contentious view. Uh, yeah, which we, we, we will debate resolutely. <laughs> Gita is burning and yearning to respond on both those points. <laughs> so, so, sorry, just um, coming back to the banks. Um, I think women do find it harder and let me explain to you why because they tend to be slightly risk averse and one of the things the banks want is um, personal guarantees, 
or they want collateral. And women are just not willing to put their house on the line. And so what you tend to find is that, you know, um, when a guy goes and, uh, and, and looks for that finance, he can do it much more confidently, comes home, discusses, say, look, we really have to do it. And obviously, you look at your economic reality in your own house. But women are very reluctant to put their house on the line, and I would certainly not advocate any business to do that. So that's the bit on the banks. Yeah. Um, on the women on boards, I was on Radio 4 um, some time ago actually arguing against quotas for women. Mm. Um, I got lots of nice texts and emails from guys, but I didn't get many from women, <laughs> which was rather <laughs> odd. Um, the, the issue, I think, there is the fact that if you, all the focus seems to be on FTSE boardrooms, which I think is very unfortunate. If you actually did an analysis and went behind um, the non-exec directors that you got on FTSE boardrooms, what you will find is something like 48% um, of those FTSE women directors, exec and non-exec, come from um, so top-class universities defined as in the UK, Oxford and Cambridge, in America, the Ivy League universities, and in France, the Grand École. So, so half, virtually half of the directors there, you know, those places are taken. Um, just like um, people look into their immediate networks to recruit from those, in a way you get that sort of culture perpetuated. So really, so you then end up with sort of the other half of it. And... You know, I think the recruitment agents, search firms, nomination committees, all of those have huge responsibilities because typically, I mean, women that speak to me that are very capable uh, of um, board positions at that sort of level, they'll say to me, they get asked two questions by the search agents. One is, are you Oxbridge? Have you had boardroom experience before? So if the answer to either of those is, or both of those is no, well, you don't, stand, you, you don't stand in the running. So the reason the responsibilities with the um, search agents and recruitment companies is what you need to do is to actually have a diverse base so that you've got men and women and whatever it is that you're trying to recruit in, in the position for running. You know, it's a bit like saying to somebody, win a lottery, but how are you going to do that if you, if you haven't bought a ticket? So you need to be in the running and then actually be chosen on merit. Um, there's a whole separate discussion, isn't there, about the, the kind of uninstitutional uh, ways in which people are screened out. Susanna Tavern, up here, you are a board member, are you not? I consider myself to be a um, professional non-executive director. Uh, one of the uh, things which has been said, which has certainly got me worried, is Geeta's description of the brain drain uh, away from corporations and into entrepreneurial ventures. And uh, if you look at the issue of women on boards, it seems to me uh, boards certainly need women. Um, we've heard about the power of the female economy, uh, um, the w women as spenders, women as uh, workers. Uh, the, the, we've heard about the importance of women within groups uh, and the way in which they change the nature of the thinking. Uh, all the research shows that the more successful companies, the most successful companies, are, are those with boards which include a fair number of women. So th there's no question that boards need women. I think the interesting question is, do women need boards? <laughs> that, 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 that really bothers me. Uh, why aren't there more women on boards? Uh, certainly a lot of it has to do with 
uh, institutional discrimination, with the way in which uh, um, boards recruit in their own image and define what they're looking for in, in an inherently male way. Uh, but I do think there is also a strong element of this, which is women opting out. And who can blame them? Uh, why, why do they opt out? Uh, Katie described maternity leave. I don't think so much the issue of women having a, a year off. I mean, a year is not a huge uh, amount of time in a, in a corporate career. But by the time you're at the top of a, 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 an organization, the commitment in terms of your time required of you, especially if it's an international one, is horrific. You, you sell your soul to it. Uh, most women, I think, have more sense. <laughs> Uh, and and, and, and uh, so I, I think that there's a real issue. For so long as board members are defined as being people who are former uh, executives, former finance directors, former chief executives, and, and those are the skills which are prized uh, above anyone, any others, uh, there aren't going to be uh, that, that, that many women on boards. So time uh, and, and the level of commitment are a huge issue in bringing up this, this generation of future board members. Uh, and I also think that there's an issue about temperament. I really wouldn't want to generalize too violently, but uh, the kind of skills that you need to get to the top of the greasy pole uh, certainly include a level of um, ruthlessness, uh, of focus, uh, um, which uh, maybe uh, uh, not, not so many women have. So I think the, the, the issues of time and temperament need to be grappled um, for the sake of our economy as a whole. Rachel, that's right, isn't it? I mean, certainly the reason why so many women are choosing entrepreneurial, self-employed life as opposed to necessarily wanting investment for businesses that are going to become fantastically profitable is the work-life balance. Uh, there's no question about that, surely. I, I don't think there is a question about that. I do think there's a big question for large employers and corporates that the, the brain drain question because I think they can't afford to lose these extremely talented people and I think they are losing them in droves and I think the question around do boards need women and I, I mean I would say of course they do they need diversity they don't just need women they need pe people who aren't educated in two universities they probably need much broader experience from all sorts of different people who've had much you know different experiences I think whether women need boards, I think women need women on boards and, I think, and, and, and people need role models and we've talked a bit about mentoring and role models. We need something to strive for, um, we need to see that it's possible and um, so, so I do think women need boards. The boards are going to have to change, the, the structures are going to have to change if it's going to be possible. Thank you. Did you want to say something, Ina? Ina, what have you got to say and then we'll come round to this bit of the room. Um, I'm just a bit puzzled as to why one of the biggest problems hasn't been issued, uh, mentioned, which is why women make less money than men. And I'm going to say that because after living in the city for a number of years, I was able to become an entrepreneur in technology because I could live one year out of my savings, didn't pay, not paying myself. And I think that many, many women do not have that freedom because they cannot save at a better rate to then sit down and say, I hate my job in this firm. I really always wanted to dream to do that. I'm just going to go and do it. Women don't have access to that because they still are not paid what they should. And I am outraged as to why I read it in the papers. And it's like that thing looming over our heads and no one is picking it up. 
I would like to go on strike one day, all women on strike one day, and let's see if the country functions. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Although with the average wage in this country, even the above average wage, it's debatable whether any, anybody of any gender can save enough to take a year off, really. Hi, I'd just like to take an issue with the idea that it's always a good thing to have a diverse board. I always think that's quite a, a myth, a pious myth. Um, that really good decisions are made by people with a high level of trust between them. And if you deliberately create a diverse structure, what happens is that you know, it's more difficult, it's not impossible, but it becomes more difficult to have that high level of trust which makes good decisions and builds businesses. Hi, Brigitte Trappel. I'm delighted that the, uh, the money issue has been raised um, because we, we are you know, still paid less than men. And I think that is... Um, very important. But I'd also like to get back to the, the, the women in the boardroom. There are plenty of women who decide they don't want to go all the way up, but there are just as many men who decide they want, don't want to go all the way up. And there are plenty of women who do want to go all the way up and don't ever, ever get there. And um, one reason I heard recently, which I thought was quite interesting, was about organizations, if you, about having mentors, proper mentors. Because as a man generally makes his way up the career ladder. There are senior men who champion them. And, um, th and there could be a problem with senior men championing younger women because the assumption always is that there may be a different reason why they're championing that woman. So both senior men and junior women shy away from that informal mentoring that's been in place. And I think that's something that we need to address is how do we get more formal mentoring in organizations to get over that. How many women here are on boards that are not their own tiny board? Okay. And how many men are on boards that are not, right, so not actually massively different numbers? And how many people here are are pro-quota. That is not what Lord Abazoch recommended. That is the enforced quota of having women numbers on boards. How many people are in favour of quotas? And how many people are against? And how many people, in the immortal words of the trade union meeting, want to abstain? <laughs> All right, so we're against quotas in this room at this precise snapshot moment in time. Sharma Pereira. Um, I do sit on a couple of boards, but they're not paying. Um, and uh, when people ask me what I do, I say I have a portfolio career, which means I'm skilled and can do loads of things, but I'm mainly unemployed. So, um, and, I, and I think that, uh, that sums up the position of a lot of women, which, I wanted, which is what I wanted to ask about. But I also just wanted to say, in response to what you said, Katie, about the one year, I don't think it's ever us schoolgate mothers who are expecting to be on the boards of Barclays and FTSE 100 companies. We're looking at those women who are running businesses, who've stayed in all the way through, who, who manage whole departments, who manage uh, out, outsourcing, who manage all sorts of things. They're the women that we think should be on the boards, not us, not the ones who took time out to raise children. Um, but I wanted to talk about those women who take time out to raise children because I'm one of them. And I think we are so unfitted for entrepreneurial uh, growth because of that. And I just wondered if, the, if there are in place or one is thinking of putting in place some kind of scheme to help them. Because if you've been out of the loop at a time when 
uh, new technologies have completely transformed the way that business is done. Uh, you know, I'm a journalist, but I go into a, into a newspaper office now. I don't recognize it from what I left behind. And while I can feed in freelance uh, articles, I can't actually work in it because I don't understand it. And I think one of the biggest problems is those women who have taken time out, who have worked from home. Um, so a lot of people who've taken time out have also been working, but they've been working from home. They're then ready to come back in at 50, 55, whatever. The man who's also been working has just left uh, a major job and can say, you know, I've just been doing this for the past 30 years, so please give me work. I can say, I've been freelancing every blooming week for the past 30 years, but I can't compete with that man who's just come out. And not that I'm wanting to, sorry, but uh, I'm getting slightly conf The point I'm trying to make is that there are two different types of women. There are those women who uh, should be on the top boards, and those women, those of us who have taken time out for having children are not for one minute thinking we should be on those boards. So don't pull us into that argument to try and muddy the water. There are loads of women out there who should be on those boards, who have put in the time, have the skills, should damn well be there, but you keep pulling people like me into the argument to discredit them. It's okay. wrong. Thank That's you. the first point. And oh. the second point is, how do you help those who've been out of the loop because they have to be entrepreneurial but often don't know how? <clears throat> yeah, I'm Graham Hitchin. I just wanted to make an observation, really, that, um, connecting up the various sessions we've, we've heard, which have been really fascinating, and, and then link that back to a question that, that certainly if David Willits were here, I'd like to ask him, but perhaps, as it were, through him, I'll ask the panel, which is, it seems to me there's a myth about enterprise, the enterprise culture, which is all about getting out of the way. Yeah? Because what I've heard this morning from panel after panel and panelist after panelist is that actually entrepreneurs are very, very different. They're not born with these skills. There are certain they, people have skills that they don't recognize, the young people that we heard before, the stories we heard before, um, that, that actually they're denied the opportunity to get access to finance or to get access to jobs because of their gender because of their ethnicity, um, because of their um, social situation, which means that they don't have trust funds or other funds that they can call on. These are the stories we've heard this morning. We've heard that a lot. And yet the, the message that I hear a lot from government is about getting out of the way. For example, David Willits, in answer to a question before about um, helping small companies deal with the fact that uh, cash flow problems that have come about through the contracts they have with major corporations where major corporations don't pay for a long period of time. David Willett's response was to say, we don't want to intervene. What we're trying to do is to deregulate and actually remove red tape. And the question that was asked before was about, is this, you know, a, a lot. In, my question in a sense is, is intervention to support women, black entrepreneurs, people from, um, with, with, who either through lack of education or because of their social class don't have the opportunities that others have, is that a, an economic intervention? And if it's not considered to be an economic intervention, why not? Yes, hello, Sylvia Barrett from the London Chamber of Commerce and previously at Enterprise UK. Um, on the question of um, access to capital, uh, it's been found uh, by many research that um, a lack of access to capital is one of the main reasons for um, women not to start up or not to grow their businesses, um, including by um, the entrepreneurship report that the London Chamber uh, did with uh, Mishkan Derea. And, um, but the report found that uh, there should be a lot more holistic approach to um, funding businesses, so not just the banks. Um, so, for example, um, you know, uh, private investment. Uh, but 
also, um, I agree with Kate here that um, the um, separatist approach only um, may be a barrier to, um, to women accessing capital, but not only. Um, and uh, what uh, Enterprise UK um, uh, was recommending while it was existing was, for example, the uh, segmentation on the basis of uh, attitudes to entrepreneurship, not um, physical attributes, but attitudes such as uh, being a self-start or a team player. Um, and um, I think that's something that should be advocated a lot more. Uh, Ollie Barrett, um, I know we're short of time. I'd love to hear more about the very specific barriers because the numbers are quite overwhelming. I heard recently, and this may or may not be true, so please correct me, is it right that it is not possible to claim childcare expenses as business expenses? Now that seems to me to be a barrier, and I wonder if something could be done about that. Um, also, is this view that there are certain qualities that men have and certain qualities that women have which could be developed and strengthened and nurtured, is that terribly old-fashioned or is that refreshingly modern? What's our conclusion on that? Also, on the trade missions that I have helped run to San Francisco, to be perfectly honest, we don't look to see the sex of the founder when we review whether the company should be selected for the mission. Is that um, a little stupid of us? Or should we stick to our guns and look at the quality of the business? Thank you. Battle of ideas point, and then we'll begin our beginnings of the wrap-up. Thank you, Julia. Tony Gilland. Uh, I wanted to ask the panel, what does any of this have to do with economic opportunity? Seems to me that uh, whether you're young, old, male, female, black, white, living in the UK, living in America, living in India, what everyone will be benefit from is more economic opportunity. So I really like, Gita, your if there is a business case or there is no case, a hard-nosed approach. I thought that was really refreshing. But then you did this big thing about the female economy. I'm not convinced, and it hasn't been addressed and it's not been taken up, uh, that this idea of an emerging economy bigger than the opportunities in China and India as the female economy is helpful. It seems to me to reflect a sort of too much of a, a sales-led approach to the future of our economies, where everything is about you know, who we're going to sell to. Obviously, an important question, but in terms of production, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of education, in terms of you know, new design, there's a lot of things that uh, need to happen to create new economic opportunities and genuinely new uh, uh, things. I don't see how looking at things in terms of a female economy at a global level is in any way helpful. So could you explain why? That's where all the growth is going to come from. So if you want to be part of the growth tra tra trajectory, you need to actually look at that. Now, what's, what's interesting is that when you look at the numbers, I said to you that when you look at, um, when you, when you look at the pool of um, uh, women that are looking for funding, right, they only secure 2.5% venture capital. Now, if I told you that most of the women that come to me get brought in by blokes, you know, they're the advisors, and they say, well, we can't find funding for this because people don't understand this concept. Or this happens, can you have a look at this? So, you know, it's, it's a, I'm looking at it purely from a bottom line impact point of view. I'm, look, I'm saying that if you can actually take a business and you can, act, you, can, you can grow it, and there's the business case first, and then you look at other attributes. And if you find, you know, like when we came back to the boardroom argument, if it's, if it's just a one-gender board, I think there's a risk associated with a one-gender board because it doesn't have all the skill set, it doesn't have all the influence, influence it doesn't have all the networks. Um, but, but what about the real politic point that was made that there's a sort of piety to compiling a board that ticks boxes? I think there is something interesting about that view that you pack boards with women or 
more diversity and then suddenly boards are marvellous as a result and your point is they aren't necessarily marvellous as a result so hang on hang on just Gita and then Rachel and then Dinah's longing to come in okay so look looking at your uh, your comments on diversity you know if someone's going to go and do do business in India right if you don't understand the culture you'll be eaten alive if you don't have the business relationships you want to set up a new business you need that input into your decision-making process. If you're going to go and do business in China and you don't have a, a subsidiary board or somebody that, that can actually engage with the customer knows what's happened, you're taking a huge risk with shareholders' money. So the point of diversity is, you know, if you've got a 70-year-old sitting on your board uh, that has you know, done the great and good and achieved lots of things in his life, but he doesn't understand what a social network is, and your brand gets damaged overnight through social networks because your customer service is... Uh, has influenced that. I mean, how do you help, you know, what are you there to do is to protect but the assets of this, shareholders? What if this chap's board needs a board member mm-hmm. and he <coughs> comes under politically correct pressure to appoint a woman because there's no women on the board and he says, yes, but that man over there who's 55, I think will be better. What's your view on that? My, it always has to be based on merit on the skills that are required, on the things that are missing in the boardroom. So it's what, I'm, what my plea is that when you actually choose people, make sure you have, the, you have a wider base to choose from and the yeah. best person gets the job. But isn't there then a tension between what is culturally going to be more and more required and the reality that some of the old, as Ollie puts it, practices are still going to pertain. So Rachel, where are we on the board that wants a 55-year-old white male because that board thinks he's best and the culture is, what about, for the sake of argument, the women? What does that board do? Well, I mean, I would have to agree that a group of a group of people who are there just because they're diverse is not going to make a very good board. And a sort of Noah's Ark approach, I'll have two women and I'll have two people with disabilities and I'll have two of them and two of them. That's obviously not going to make a good board. I think, I think the, Gita made exactly the right arguments about why a diverse board would be a very good thing. I think you have to look at the reasons why I want that 55-year-old man. It's probably because I'm comfortable with him, I as the chairman. Uh, it's probably because it just makes me feel safer because I know what he's going to say when I ask a question. And that's not very creative. Certainly if you're trying to go into emerging markets, as you said, certainly if your business is research and development, having a a monoculture and sort of very restricted views, you might make quick decisions, but you're pretty much going to make the wrong decisions a lot of the time because you don't have anyone challenging them. And I don't think it's pious to say that having, having a very... Very restricted boards is probably very bad for your business, and the, the more diverse boards are doing better. Seventy percent. Yeah, so intuitively, we employ people in our own like. It's safer. It's less risky. And research has shown that if you actually get 70% of the same type in any group, any team, any board, it actually becomes dysfunctional. You lack innovation. You lack creativity. You need that. And there are bottom-line results. Ernst & Young have done the research. A whole range of organisations have done it. So it's not just about gender diversity. It's diversity as a whole. And it's up to the chair to ensure that there's trust there. And, you know, I think you've got a pretty dodgy chair if they can't actually get a board that trusts each other in terms of that decision-making. First of all, I would never say don't take advice from as many people as possible. And if you're going to start up business in India, it would be obviously fantastic to have more people who've, who've lived there and who, who've done it. 
what I am saying is that to have something that changes a market, um, a, a very uh, fast-moving company has to have a small, probably quite a small group of people who have an instinctive trust in each other and that um, you know, maybe when you get to a large company pottering along, enforcing a politically uh, correct board might be a good thing. But real change is made by um, politically incorrect groups of people. Are you suggesting that diverse groups can't trust each other, that people, that men and women sat having a discussion can't trust each other? Because I, I think that's wrong. Uh, I, I'm not suggesting that. I'm su suggesting it's more difficult, um, often a commonality of any kind, whether, it, you know, people who've been to the same kind of school background or whatever, enables that more quickly. Katie, I want to ask your view, going back to the one-year maternity leave point and Sharma Pereira's point that there are some women who regard themselves as corporate beings, whether they have children or not, and some who opt out of that traditional environment. So the woman who does regard herself as a corporate being, mm -hmm. who wants to get to the top, mm -hmm. and she has a baby, should she deny herself and her family the option of a year if that's what she wants absolutely or is it case by case yeah we and were doing this debate yesterday actually um on a uh, an article i wrote called micro maternity leave and i think the clue's in the title and um <laughs> and so for my three children oh, you have had children yeah i have it's uh, it's not something i talk about because actually i don't think it's relevant to my business funnily enough um but uh, i have a six four two-year-old and I took three weeks, one week, three weeks. I take, so I say this not as some kind of heroism award. I say it because we're talking about the topic. And, uh, and I don't believe if you want... To, that, that was my personal decision. Uh, if you want to get ahead, uh, I want to stay in the race. I wanted to stay where I was. I wanted to stay on the same pay scale as my male colleagues. I wanted to get the position I got to in the company. Um, and that was the decision I took in order to do, make both of those things happen. And you can get childcare and get your business to pay for it if you get a nanny and employ her through your own company. It's marvellous. Do you then feel that the stuff that Rachel is rightly talking about, which is human life coming into the workplace, also known in my lexicon as guilt, <laughs> plays a part? In other words, it isn't actually as transactional, is it? It's much more complicated for women and indeed for men. Do you want to make a point on that comment? Do you want to comment on that particular point? Say who you are. Uh, Helen Disney, I run a think tank and a network of other think tanks across Europe. And um, I'm just interested in the panel's views on how you instill confidence, because it's sort of the flip side of this guilt thing. Um, I think most of my business life problems have been generated by my own sort of self-doubts or lack of confidence. So, for example, <laughs> A year after I started the business, I got pregnant with my first child, and I, my immediate worry was my male sponsors are not going to think I'm taking this business seriously because I'm now pregnant, and they won't want to invest in me because they won't think that I will put the same commitment into it when I come back. And now five years later, I'm having another baby, and I don't have those same feelings because I've gone through that experience and I've done it. 
But I think most of the problems about pay and being on boards and all these other things stem from self-generated either guilt or lack of confidence. That point into a, a final set of remarks actually about confidence and networking, but I'd like Rachel to come back to this point about the human life and the job trajectory, which is if you do not opt out and become entrepreneurial small e, and you in fact stay big C corporate, but you have a life, you have caring responsibilities. I mean, Simon here, you know, you're, I wonder uh, what, what Simon thinks actually, you know, where, where are we in terms of human life coming into corporate life? I think we're seeing it more. Um, one of my members I was talking to, huge um, bank, um, investment bank, not a very good track record on um, being with women. They've just employed a midwife. I thought it was a bit odd to have a midwife in the back. They said, you know, our women are having babies, our chaps are having wives who have babies, so we'll just get this midwife in and it's quite nice. I, I thought it was a bit odd. I mean, I wouldn't go to work to see a midwife, but it, they were trying to say that we are employing humans, humans reproduce Ergo, we might help them with that. I thought slightly oddly. But um, I do think good employers are starting to say that we, we don't necessarily want these automatons. And we do want women. And I don't necessarily agree that women who have babies and decide they want to take a year off on maternity leave are automatically opting out of any future career. I do think it's a very short amount of time we're talking about. And I think employers can adapt quick comment from me. I, was, I must admit, I was going to keep quiet on this one. I thought this is, this is dangerous ground, which is quite ridiculous, isn't it? In a sense, that point was made before. You know, would you mentor a younger woman in an organisation? Do I have fear of that? Yes, I do, you know, for all of the reasons that we don't need to go into. Uh, and, and that is a problem, isn't it? Uh, business, to me, is about success. And, and you know, it's not primarily a social enterprise. It is about success. However, to be successful, you have to take into account the social issues. And whether that, you know, whichever range of diversity we're talking about, whether it's male, female, you know, regional, ethnic, etc., etc., all of those need to be taken into account. But I suggest none are more important than the other. Uh, and therefore, I rather agree with the comments that were made before, that it needs to be taken into account, but let's not make a social experiment out of it. And in the end, it comes down to, are you committed or not and if you're committed, you'll be successful. If you're not committed, I regret you won't be. Hello, Susan Cooper. Um, I'm just setting up a new business myself. Um, one of the things that I've been slightly concerned about, there's been a lot of emphasis on the employer and laying, um, I suppose, the solution at the door of the employer. And my own experience is that this is really more of a social issue. It is something, and sorry to point out the obvious, but it, this is a social issue we need to get across. And in a lot of cases, I've witnessed myself, employers that have tried to be helpful, have tried to be understanding, but in those cases, it's the clients, perhaps, of those employers that make this flexibility and work-life balance almost impossible. From my own experience as a banking lawyer, it wasn't the employers necessarily that were inhibiting me. It was the fact that my clients wanted me there 24-7. So there seems to be... The um, throughout the discussions, a focus on the employer, and I just want to ensure that we, we maintain the sort of view that it's a, it's a much bigger uh, scale problem. Thank you. This is an exceedingly quick comment, but I worked first of all in the oil industry, both in the UK and the US, and there were men and women in teams together at senior levels. Then I worked in telecoms, it was the same. My most recent full-time experience was in the public sector in this country in a team with a male managing director and all the directors were male. 
and I was the only one of those directors to even have women reporting to me and our team, which is half male, half female. The others, men reported to them. I can just say from that experience, it was horrible. And there was a kind of locker room, jokey, jock attitude. Serious issues were dodged, and it really brought home to me the value of having a mixed economy in the workplace. But it's a long way from that to going to women in entrepreneurialism, which is what this is probably about. But I wanted just to comment as a response to the gentleman over there. Thank you. Sir, you are the last comment. Make it pithy and marvellous and tell you who you are. Um, six years ago, I wrote a report for the Ministry of Defence on um, factors affecting the uh, retention of women in the Royal Navy. And I was the only bloke, and I interviewed 3,200 women um, in what has been uh, a traditionally very male-dominated um, environment. Um, and we want to find out why they would stay. And the comments I had, or stroke questions for the panel, my observations from that study, which went to become part of government policy, were several. Firstly, how segmented women's needs are. So childcare was an issue for women who had children or wanted to have children, but absolutely wasn't for most people in that thing. Secondly, that there are necessary compromises that you have to make between a career um, and your own lifestyle choices. So in the Royal Navy, people have to go to sea and have to go into combat. You can't come back and see your kids every weekend. And there are, whatever you do, and we, we did a lot of policy interventions from pay equality and all the rest of it, um, there are limits to what you can do because people have to make choices about their own career and I think that's very important. And the third thing I found from that and the comment stroke question for the panel is that most of the women I interviewed for that study, which was six months long, actually didn't want favoritism, they just wanted equality of opportunity for the choices that they wanted to make in their own career and actually things like quotas and they were suggested for quotas on promotion boards and things like that were viewed as absolutely horrific in, albeit, a public sector organisation. Thanks. Thank you. So that is a very good ending point. Well done for being pithy and marvellous. <laughs> I'm just going to ask the panellists very quickly to say what they actually want to say now in as quick a way as possible, apropos their own... where you started from in this discussion and anything you've heard that has made an impression to either change or consolidate your mind. I'm going to go left to right... Rachel. Well, I think it's been an interesting discussion, and, I, and, I, and I'm quite relieved that there's been quite a lot of agreement that a bit of diversity on boards, including women, is going to be a good thing, that we do need to sort out the pay issue, um, because it isn't fair, and um, that um, it's true that women aren't a homogenous group, and that everyone in the workplace and everyone in enterprise has, diver has different needs, and we need to get a bit better at meeting some of the needs. It's not just employers, it's society. Diana. Segmentation, I think, is the key. It's good business sense. Um, I think also choice is very, very important, whether we want to see um, a female banker, whether we want to take two weeks off maternity leave when we have a baby. Going back to mentoring, there are some really interesting programs now which not only train the mentor, they train the mentee in terms of those power dynamics and relationships. And I think it's quite sad that we're actually saying, you know, we're hesitant to actually sort of like mentor young women. In terms of competencies on the boards between men and women, I think it's, we can't be too generalist and say men are far better and women are, women are far better at this. It's about, you know, using those diverse skills that we're all bringing to the party, which is very important. And finally, upskilling. There are a lot of organisations that are doing a lot of work for women returners. Lloyd's TSB, for example, have actually got a seven-year programme for their returners. So just sort of like, you know, we can talk later about some of the organisations that can support you. Thank you. Gita. Um, just picking up a couple of general points um, um, this morning, uh, I'd say that, you know, we've had a lot of talk about mentors. My view is that in corporates, 
you, it's not really necessarily meant as you want because you find that within a, internally within an organisation it's actually very difficult to address all your issues. I think what you want to try and build in organisations are sponsors. Sponsors are people that intercede on your behalf actively to help you in your career progression. So I think senior, senior people should actually have mentors outside the organisation that, that the corporate should pay for. And within the organisation, as I said, they should develop um, sponsors. The second point I'd like to make, you know, particularly in the women's markets and my experience in it, is I'm not sure that if many of you know, but apparently women love networking and there are 700 networks in, the, in London alone. Yeah. None of them as good yeah. as the EI clubs. <laughs> yeah, I don't really see any decent business networks where you can actually go and talk business, get contracts, you know, get, get influence that's going to actually help your bottom line. And I think that radically needs to change. And, and, you know, a lot of women really just don't know how to network. I mean, you know, I think you made some very valid points. You know, you get a, a, if I'm going out with a guy, you know, he'll come to the pub and he'll say, um, Got, you know, got this deal, are you in, are you out? If not, do you know someone else that's in? Let's have a beer. The women will talk about, you know, the family, the history, the weather, the... That's what they call in broadcast news burying the lead. She's just kind of dropped this clanger right at the end. Yeah. Women don't know how to network. Discuss. Geeta. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. And they apologise at the end saying, look at my business plan. See me after class, Geeta, on that point. Um, Katie, she's brilliant. Um, so have a great foyer, have some great square footage, package yourself brilliantly, live in a tall building. If you don't, practice going up two floors and make sure you're bloody good at it. If your apartment's tiny, if it's not, learn to network, give someone your business card and give them a reason to want to see you. And for you, sir, that will be difficult. And finally... <laughs> Let, the, let people know where you're at. Don't hide yourself away. If it's crap, tell it's crap. If you're not feeling very confident, tell someone you're not feeling very confident and they will help you out. Thank you very much. <laughs>